My name is Dr. Ian Storch. I'm a board-certified gastroenterologist and osteopathic physician, and you are listening to DO or Do Not. If you're interested in joining our team or have suggestions or comments, please contact us at doordonotpodcast.com. Share our link with your friends and like us on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, my name is Tom Jasinowski, and I'm a third-year osteopathic medical student at the Chicago College of Osteopathic Medicine, or CCOM. I serve as editor-in-chief of the DO or Do Not podcast. If you notice anything amiss in our episodes, do not hesitate to bring it to our attention. On this episode of the DO or Do Not podcast, we interview Sandra Snyder, DO. Dr. Snyder is the program director of the Family Medicine residency program at the Cleveland Clinic. It is with pride that we speak with Dr. Snyder, an osteopathic physician who leads a program at one of the most prestigious institutions in the country. This episode focuses mostly on the field of family medicine from the unique perspective of a residency director. Dr. Snyder will talk about the residents that come to the Cleveland Clinic to train with her and provide further insights for medical students interested in such a program. Dr. Snyder will discuss why both osteopathic and allopathic students should care about the future of family medicine. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Do or Do Not podcast. Today we have Dr. Sandra Snyder with us. She's the Family Medicine Program Director at the Cleveland Clinic. Welcome. So glad to be here today with you. So to just jump right into questions, can you tell us what your roles include and what a typical day or week in your life looks like? Yeah, sure. So I have a really wonderful job. So I have a a nice balance between seeing patients, also doing a little bit of research and teaching. So Mm -hmm. my day consists or my week consists of about 30% of my time is seeing clinical patients. And then I spend time precepting. And then I do a lot of time just kind of reviewing scholarly activity and also working on some of my own scholarly activity. So it's a really nice, diverse job and I really feel it's it's meaningful work and I'm just so grateful, you know, to kind of have that diversity in in my work. It's kind of wearing all different hats, you know, that's clinical hat, that research hat, mm-hmm. and that's you know educational hat. Can you tell us what your program is like at the Cleveland Clinic? So we're a family medicine program. So we were a six 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 program. So it's mm-hmm. a three year program with six you know, residents per year, mm-hmm. but we actually have expanded. So we are have our first year class has eight residents, and then eventually we're going to be an eight eight eight. It's a really wonderful program where you know we initially were started as an allopathic residency, but I was actually recruited back. I trained there, and I was recruited back to start up a, an osteopathic residency. So we became duly accredited. And if you really study allopathic primary care it parallels osteopathy, that kind of holistic biopsychosocial model where you you think about patients spiritually, their social determinants of health. So when I came on board, the thought was that we keep that uh, structure and really teach everybody osteopathic principles and practice. 
So in our residency, we're actually about half allopathic and half osteopathic. But when you come, you really can't tell who is an allopathic physician or an osteopathic physician. So it's a really nice training milieu. I think the other thing that's really neat about it is that OMT skills, like our allopathic residents really enjoy that. We have an integrative health longitudinal curriculum uh, with the University of Arizona. It's a track. And so we, really, we attract allopathic residents who are into kind of that alternative integrative medicine approach. So they really love OMT and, you know, embark on it. And then, in, unfortunately, in Ohio, you know, we practice in the epicenter of the opiate epidemic. So having tools, you know, our residents to have tools like OMT mm-hmm. really is a nice, nice alternative than, you know, Percocet or Vicodin. So it's a really, I think, great um, nice osteopathic clinical learning environment uh, where we train. Yeah. So our mentor, Dr. Stewart, sometimes talks about some medical students might overlook family medicine sometimes just in favor of specializing. Can you explain, though, to our listeners why family medicine is so important and what makes family medicine practitioners special among doctors? I just love family medicine. You know, I was drawn to it. I'm a people person. I love relationships. I love continuity. I have a patient practice where I've seen some of my patients for over 30 years, and it's just amazing. And I think when you think you just look post-COVID of all of the cracks in our you know public health system and in our primary care system, you know, just having you know these relationships and this continuity, you can move people. You can encourage people to get the vaccine because you you've known them for so long. You can encourage people to stop smoking. You know, all of these things that are often the fundamental concepts of osteopathy you know anybody can treat disease but what profession can promote health and it's it's often primary care especially you know family medicine because we have that generational take care of patients over a generation like I have patients that I have delivered their children who now I see their children Um, I've been with some of my patients like I had a patient who recently died who I delivered her grandchild so I was there with her you know kind of when her grand grandchild was born and as she passed so it's a really when you think about you know being a physician and you know having just those deep relationships you reflect back on your career and said wow you know I really feel like I've made an impact I think the other thing with family medicine is you can have a really nice, balanced life. You know, I, I'm blessed. I have two grown children almost. I have a, a 17-year-old, but I was able to be a soccer coach. I was able to be there. A job that offers you that kind of ability to diversify your career and you know, kind of step in and step out. As a family physician, you can maybe do sports medicine or you could you know, deliver babies. You could also go into advocacy. So we have a lot of flexibility of what we do in this career. And I do think the future of family medicine is much brighter in the next 30 years than it has been in the past. I think that's one of the silver linings of the pandemic is really, I think there's national attention to really, you know, improve the primary care infrastructure and public health system in our country. So I think it's going to be a different future for primary care and a much better future with as a, a choice for uh, medical students. So you mentioned a little that you kind of wear multiple hats throughout your week. 
Do you still see patients clinically? And if so, what type of patients do you typically see? I'm very blessed. So I have a wonderful practice. Like I said, I've been in practice for a very long time. So I have this cohort of patients who are very loyal. I do pretty much everything, but don't deliver babies. So I do inpatient care, lots of procedures, outpatient care. I do take care of a vulnerable population. So I'm very blessed. One of my colleagues, Dr. Carl Tyler, has been a guru in adult patients with intellectual and developmental disabilities. His story is kind of neat. He practiced in Canton at the time when IDD patients were institutionalized and they became deinstitutionalized into his community. So he became a guru in this. So I happened to work with him mm-hmm. and he, these patients are part of my practice. So I've really done a work closely with him to really help that population, you know, improve the health of that population. So we've done a lot of work that we work with the community-based participatory research network, which is a group of individuals who are really committed to improving the health of IDD patients. So we work with them to provide uh, teaching videos for our staff on how to talk to patients with IDD. We've done work with improving health. Like we partnered with a local community organization to provide healthy meals for our cooking for our patients with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, so my whole ga- my gamut is pretty you know broad, but I do have that kind of little bit of a niche, and and that's what we try to teach in you know primary care and especially osteopathic primary care is you really want to become whatever type of physician that your community needs. So we train our you know residents and medical students in a couple of vulnerable populations, but what we hope is that they go out and use these skills that we're teaching them to take care of these vulnerable populations and apply it to wherever they go. So if they go into a community with a big, a large refugee population, they'll have that kind of skill set that we've taught them for the vulnerable populations that we've served. Cleveland Clinic is obviously a very prestigious allopathic mm-hmm. institution. Did you feel there were any obstacles as a DO at all to become the program director? Yeah, I always kind of refer to the Cleveland Clinic as a a large academic institution. The beauty of working at the Cleveland Clinic is they look at all their physicians and they really just try to make them the best they can be. So I felt completely supportive. I'm so grateful. You know, there's so many opportunities that I've had just to develop myself in leadership and research. They are very pro-osteopathic. In fact, you know, they have their own medical school but they've actually partnered with Ohio University Heritage College of Medicine to create the primary care population health workforce of the future. So it just speaks to how they value, you know, this they value any any person. They just want to make them the best. But especially I think they they are starting to recognize that the osteopathic world is very in tune to training urban underserved and rural physicians, which as you know, the Cleveland Clinic expands their footprint, this, you know, becomes important. And the Cleveland Clinic is very conscious of improving the health of of everyone. So this is a great partnership. Um, But as an osteopath, I have no discrimination or anything. I felt that I valued and really can be as successful and be a program director. And if I even wanted to go further up in my career at the Cleveland Clinic, I feel like I would be completely supportive. And I think the other thing that I think a lot of people don't realize it is it is this academic powerhouse, yeah. you know, known for face transplants and all these wonderful things. 
But it's a community program, and you know, I've trained there, I practice there, and I practice in the community, and I've been able to really you know, do things like working with IDD patients to improve the health of the community. So there's also you know, a community component that I think um, is sometimes just overlooked in with when people refer to the Cleveland Clinic. So could you speak on any of the differences that you've seen between DO and MD residents? You- I think that the training, you know, sometimes when we get them the the onboarding, the training is a little bit different. So obviously, I think the osteopathic physicians have more like 200 hours in musculoskeletal medicine. So they often are a little bit higher when they enter our program. But we have a longitudinal curriculum where we actually can bring up our allopathic residents to the same level as our osteopaths. Sometimes in the allopathic schools, I think they have a lot more resources in research. So sometimes they have just a little bit more understanding or they've gone through the IRB. But, you know, I've been doing this for so long that I think that they've changed. Like, I think that the osteopathic schools are really trying to improve, you know, some of their research curriculum. I think allopathic schools are trying, you know, to add more musculoskeletal medicine. So the beauty is, I think, you know, just having them together makes them each better. You know, so I think having the allopathic, you know, residents with the osteopathic residents makes our osteopathic residents stronger in scholarly work, which is you know, something we need in the osteopathic world. And then working with the al- the allopathic residents, working with osteopathic residents, make them better at taking care of musculoskeletal complaints, mm-hmm. which when you really look at primary care, you know, what do we see in the office every day is often back pain, headache, neck pain, lots of musculoskeletal ailments. So even if they aren't going to do full spectrum OMT, they're better at, you know, diagnosing and addressing these patients and managing them within their practice versus having to refer them off and incur, you know, unnecessary costs. And just to speak a little on the um, research component, we actually interviewed a lawyer that works for the AACOM, and he mentioned that they are actually working on getting more funding from the NIH for osteopathic medical schools to do research. So what are some of the most common hurdles that you tend to see for new residents that are navigating training coming out of medical school? That's a great question. So I think some of the hurdles that I see is, you know, first off, uh, residency is, is stressful, you know, and I think what often happens is residents are coming from different locations. They necessarily don't have their family, you know, network. They don't have their friend support. They enter a world, you know, unfortunately, healthcare now is, is broken. I think pre-pandemic, it was broken. Post-pandemic, it's, it's still broken. And I think it can be stressful. You know, there are patients who sometimes get upset at you. There's nurses, nurses that get upset with you. There's other staff. So you're kind of in this environment that's just a little bit chaotic sometimes. And then you have this very large learning curve. And so I think when you put that all together, that's a big hurdle. And what I try to tell my residents is when you come in, you really try to develop your community. You really try to rely on your other residents. You know, if you have other you know, people from your school or you know people in that area, really develop your support network. I think, you know, really trying to give yourself grace, you know, really not comparing yourself to anybody, realizing, hey, if I made it into a residency, they really want me, and just try to make yourself better each day. 
And then I think just realize that, you know, it is going to be stressful. Like this is sometimes dealing with life and death. We're in a global pandemic. We're short staffed and just try to be kind and realize that if, if someone might be, you know, a little bit upset with you, that they might be dealing with something else and it's not you. So those are what I would say is probably the biggest hurdles that residents encounter when they enter a residency. So at the Cleveland Clinic, what do you guys look for in potential residents? And in addition to that, what are your thoughts on the changes in exam score reports that are being put in place? You know, I'm a proponent of the exam scores. I'm, I'm from the school of thought that I think the only thing that exam scores predict is your ability to pass a board test. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, a lot of our boards now are actually getting rid of high-stakes tests. So basically, you just have to do some question banks, and then you have to do a a QI project. So those high-stakes tests are actually going away. And if you think about it, you know, when we trained in the past, we needed that kind of rote memory to recall things uh, because we didn't have the technology that we have today. So a lot of that rote memory is on our iPhones. They have, we have point-of-care tools like Dynamid and, you know, up-to-date. So for me, you know, a, a board test is, is not what I look for. In actuality, you know, some of the people who failed the boards have been some of my strongest residents because they've overcome adversity, you know, they have gotten themselves better, and then they're really stronger to move forward. So we often go after this kind of concept of the ideal team player because, you know, healthcare now is a team sport. And the better you are at working in a team, the more effective you're going to be as a a physician, the better patient outcomes you're going to have. So we go after people who have grit, um, you know, who have that persistency, that grit that they're going to, even if they failed or something's knocked them down, they're going to come back up. We go after humility, you know, that ability to realize that you aren't that you know the greatest that you have room to grow that growth mindset and high emotional intelligence you know as a family physician you know relationships are everything that ability you know to read people to know how to respond to know how to what to say you know those are what make a great family physician and those are what we go after so i always counsel medical students don't waste your money you know in both tasks cuz honestly if a program doesn't take your test then maybe that's not the place for you mm-hmm. so i think those are just some of the pieces you know at the cleveland clinic i i can't speak for all the programs but i know that you know, a lot of the residencies are moving that way you know cuz they're realizing that board scores don't necessarily make the best surgeon i think one of the biggest challenges is just what are the alternative screening tools. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what, you know, is, is probably yet to be determined, but I think that's something that's going to come from making this pass fail. We look for the personal statement, the letters of recommendation. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times we're moving more towards like behaviorally anchored questions, you know, questions that okay. make people think a little bit more that yeah. might be out of the box. There's this concept of situation judgment testing where it's from human resources where you present somebody with a certain scenario and then they have to kind of respond to the scenario. Um, So there's even a study of video games. There's actually a study that people who are very good at video playing video games Mm -hmm. actually have pretty good manual dexterity to be a surgeon. So there's all these like creative (laughs) things coming around, but I think it's going to to be different. And I think 
that's what the GME has to take on. I think we as GME leaders need to kind of figure out, you know, how are we going to screen? But I think to reassure the medical students, I, I think just try to be the best version of yourself, be authentic. And I think, you know, putting all of your eggs and trying to get this test the highest grade and missing out on things like your humanities classes is the wrong route. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's, it's and that's where I think, I think why a lot of it has been changed to pass fail is it's everybody is focused on this of these, you know, 400 questions that are these medical knowledge when then you miss out on some of this other, other very important things that actually will make you a better physician than studying, you know, the Krebs cycle and, you know, all (laughs) the clotting pathway, you know, all of this stuff that in actuality you you can get on your, your iPhone. So I think it's, it's just trying to reassure mm-hmm. people that the change is going to come and it, and we're a little bit behind because, you know, with COVID, but I you know, reassure that there's going to be other methods mm-hmm. to screen. And so don't be so stressed about the test. Do you have any advice specifically for osteopathic students that are interested in going to the Cleveland Clinic family medicine training? Yeah, you know, I think we love, you know, for you to apply, you know, we, my advice is think, you know, residency, even in our residency or any residency, residency, I think is actually a wonderful time. You know, one of the things, a couple of the things that I think make residency wonderful is that you really get to become, you really get to form your physician identity. So you really get in that, you know, three to five year period, you're surrounded by faculty who really care about you. People that go into academic medicine in residencies care about residents. They want them to be the best. So nowhere in your career are you going to really be surrounded by people who really care about you, who care about your growth. You're actually also going to make some of the best friends of your life. You know, you, you're going to have people in a kind of a stressful situation, people around your same age that are going through the same thing. And this creates an amazing bond, an amazing community. And I think those are some, you know, positive things. So for us, I think, you know, looking at our residency or any residency, you know, just you're trying to be in medical school, the best version of yourself, you're trying to get a D on your test or a D or an F, that's all right. You're going to get into the clinical world and you're going to try to fix your phone triage system and it's not going to work and you're going to have patients that are upset and but you're not going to be demoralized or paralyzed you're going to be like I'm going to fix it I have failed before I can do that so I think just you know telling people just to try to be the best version of themselves really embracing that you know being able to talk to people being able to work on a team being conscientious you know on your rotations just try your best take the best care of your patients and I think that's you know really what we're recommending. And then if you come interview with us or spend time with us, just be who you are. You're just your authentic self. That's golden. You know, I think when people get tripped up is when they aren't that way or they feel like they have to be a certain way. And it just, it messes, I think, with that that learning. So coming in with kind of this growth mindset that I'm going to just, in kind of that realization that I am not Perfect, especially in medicine, because now we have six competencies with osteopathic medicine woven in, and there's no way you can be perfect in you know self-reflection and medical knowledge and doing research. So I think it's that growth mindset is very important. Yeah, so that's I think the things to really you know focus on and develop yourself in, and don't lose sight of that.
Just to kind of shift now, we just more want to talk about you and Mm -hmm. your journey. So can you tell us where you went to college as well as when you decided to become a physician, specifically an osteopathic physician? Yeah, that's a great question. So I grew up in the greater Cleveland area. Mm -hmm. I went to uh, a state school in Miami of Ohio. And then my family physician growing up was an osteopath. And I absolutely adored him. And I loved the fact that we would always go in as a family. And if you had some type of musculoskeletal ailment, he'd put you on a table and fix it all up. You know, he took off several moles that I had over the years that looked funny. And just to like, you know, he was able to do everything. So he was really my role model in going into family medicine. So I, I actually got accepted to two different programs. One was an allopathic and one was an osteopathic. Mm-hmm. And because of him, I chose that school. So, you know, one of the, that, the another, you know, kind of story that parallels that is he has been my father's family doc for several years. And when my father was diagnosed with uh, metastatic lung cancer, he actually called him. So, you know, I think that when we talk about, you know, and just And I thought to myself, my gosh, like this is what a doctor is. So I think that's really what had kind of pushed me into that direction. So then I, you know, trained there and I internship I did, I trained in a time when you had to do an internship to practice in several states. So I did my first two years of medical school in Athens, Ohio, and then I spent my third and fourth year in, in Cleveland, a suburb of Cleveland, mm-hmm. and I had to do a year of internship because my brother at the time was living in Florida, and that's one of the states uh, when I was in training that you had to do a DO internship in in order to get your license. Because when you entered residency at that time, some people just entered an allopathic residency. Some people did a DO residency. Some people did a DO internship. So I did the year of the DO internship at this small hospital in West in Westlake, Ohio, which was wonderful. We were the first program there. So there was a lot of, you know, kind of bump because predominantly allopathic hospital. Mm-hmm. And there was faculty who sometimes didn't want to teach. There was faculty who did want to teach. But I think that experience is really what put me into academic medicine because it really wasn't necessarily a teaching environment. Now, granted, over the years, it's been created into that. But that is when I told myself, like, I'm always going to be a teacher. I am going to devote my career to teaching. So that was one of the you know, kind of things that I thought of why of how I landed here. And then there was a program, a Cleveland Clinic. It wasn't a Cleveland Clinic yet. It was Fairview hospital, or they had an opening, a second year opening in their family medicine residency. And I had been, you know, I had done two years of medical school and a year of internship at this hospital. And I thought, you know, just like I often tell my residents who want to do a fellowship, like sometimes if you stay in the same place for so long, you can become a little bit stagnant. So I flipped to another program at, at Fairview, and I loved it. It was attached to a community hospital, a wonderful experience, so I, I trained there. And then I got hired there to work at the Cleveland Clinic, and I worked in a family health center for around six years. I saw full-spectrum um, you know, primary care, minus OB, so I admitted mm-hmm. to the hospital, Peds. And then at the time, I had a chair who was actually a preceptor in my residency clinic, when I was in residency, we worked very closely. He was in my family health center. And one day he kind of pulled me into his office. And, you know, as a, I think as any person, when you get pulled into your boss's office, you're very, very nervous. And I just remember him kind of showing me a couple of different things. So he showed me like my patient satisfaction scores. 
They showed me some of this teaching evaluation that I got and had gotten accepted into a research fellowship. And he had asked me, what do I see? And it's kind of like, I, I don't, I was like, I guess I am doing well. And he had mentioned that he saw myself as a, a future family medicine program director. So I thought that was a real compliment. And then I got uh, recruited back uh, to start the osteopathic program director uh, dual accreditation at the residency I trained at. And then I started that up. And then in uh, 2011, our previous program director retired after 15 years. And they did a national search and I became uh, the allopathic or, you know, program director. So I became duly accredited, had both roles. Yeah. Um, You can go after it. It's awesome. So what is one attribute about yourself, you might even call it kind of your superpower, that you think has really helped you become successful as a physician? I would definitely say persistence. You know, so I feel like I am persistent. So if it has to do with my patients, my residents, my medical students, or my program, I remove like myself and I figure out like what is it that my patient needs or what is it that my program needs. And I go after that. And, you know, if I get hit with a no, I don't let that deter me. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to find another angle. If I get beat up around along the way, I don't care because I've removed myself with that. And I just am going to go and make sure that patient gets whatever care if they like want to die at home. And I'm struggling with different specialists' opinion. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep trying. And I'm going to try to get them to go home. And I think like I... I try not to get emotionally involved in that. I just, you know, kind of almost sometimes just write down, okay, there, keep reflecting. What is the goal? Mm-hmm. What, what is, you know, for my program? Like, what do I need? What, you know, I need a certain rotation that my residents need to be better physicians. I'm going to find a way or an avenue to do that. Can I try this way? And then can I try that way? And, you know, obviously people are going to shut the door and say, no, you can't have that. But I'm going to say, okay, well, let, I'm going to keep trying. So I think when I reflect on just my career and where I've gotten, it's been that persistence. It's that Mm -hmm. just not giving up until we're done. And I think, you know, a lot of it comes as as a family physician. You're often on the front lines. You see the disparities in healthcare. You see, you know, sometimes the ugliness in the world. And it makes you um, advocate and fight harder for those that don't have a voice who can't fight for themselves. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's probably where it comes from. And I think because it it's deep in with the patients that I've just transcended it to the academic world, which I think has helped me achieve some of the innovations I've done. Like we've created a you know a six year accelerated pathway and blew up the way we recruit uh, medical students. Can you share with us one piece of advice that you were given by maybe a mentor that you felt is most impactful and that you'd like to pass on to any students listening? My favorite thing that I just try to live by is just to be kind to yourself. You know, I think in, in that journey, as you become a physician, when you are a physician, is I think we are often so unkind to ourselves. You know, we, we come and it's, we have this perfectionism model where you have to be perfect in high school, you have to be perfect in medical school, or undergrad, you have to be perfect in medical school, you have to be perfect to get your best residency, and we're so hard on ourselves. And I think if you can just 
be kind to yourself Mm -hmm. and just say to yourself, hey, you know what? I am good enough. I deserve to be here. I am worthy. I think that is the best advice that anybody has given to me. So, you know, I've had blimps in my career. I've had mess ups in my career, but I always go back to that. Give myself grace. Give myself kindness. Really appreciated talking to you yes, today. It's been a pleasure. An absolute time. pleasure. This concludes our episode of Do or Do Not. Send all inquiries, comments, suggestions, and even let us know if there's someone you want us to interview to do or do not podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at Do or Do Not Podcast for updates. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your classmates and administration. We have plenty of more interviews lined up, and we're excited to share them with you. This is Tian Yu Shea. Thank you guys so much for listening to Do or Do Not.